Daystar Elf. And I'm Alexander Wales. And joining us today is Duncan, also known as TK17. He's the curriculum director at CFAR and the writer of Animorphs the Reckoning. Hello, Duncan. Hello. Thanks for joining us. This is episode 32, and we're going to be talking about multiple perspectives. The narration choice, where you have more than one character that's being followed. Very rare to see it done with first-person perspectives, but usually they'll be third-person omniscient or third-person limited. And I want to talk about it because I think there are a lot of interesting choices that it opens up for the writer. Generally speaking, the question of what information is going to restrict from which perspective, having each character have their own voice... Uh, in my story, especially, I've got one explicit rationalist and two just smart characters who have very different perspectives on things. So when I've got, for example, Blue's perspective when he's encountering Pokemon or Pokemon attacks, he's not thinking about things as like, how does that work and what's the scientific principle behind that and stuff, while Red very much is. So yeah, what are your experiences with multiple perspectives and Animorphs? Obviously, there's quite a number of them. Yeah, so I was sort of constrained into that approach. I'd never written from multiple perspectives before. Some of the things it's caused me to learn, I think one of the one of the most straightforward mistakes that people make early on is sort of assigning every character a clear archetype. Uh, so you have the smart one, the dumb one, the mm-hmm. angry one, the pretty one, or whatever. And it took me a while in practice writing to key into the idea that, like, you want to have each character have a way of living and being that they would have developed on their own. So very rarely do people from the inside think of themselves as like, you know, I'm the one who's more reckless than I should be. Right. People might people might apply the label reckless to themselves, but they sort of still endorse their own perspective. So the biggest stretch for me was taking all of the things that I disagree with in each character and trying to like find a way to inhabit it as if it was perfectly reasonable. And, like, obviously the best way to go about living your life. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I really appreciate that about Rachel especially, because she's always kind of come off as the most, um, I guess, least reasonable of them in, in the Animorphs canon books. But in your story, she's she's very fully fleshed out. I love it. Yeah, I started off with her making that one very big mistake in her very first viewpoint chapter, specifically so that I could have her learn from it and sort of upgrade. But as time has gone on, I've come more and more to appreciate that just being Rachel also makes sense right. in the way that I, I knew from the start just being Jake makes sense or just being Marco makes sense. It also anchors her for readers of the book so they know like starting place is still somewhat close to the original Rachel. Yep. What about you, Alex? You have got you have another interesting trifecta of, of perspectives in um, Darkling... Uh, I forgot what it was called. Gl- Glamorgan. Glamorgan, yeah, that's one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Glamorgan is actually a uh, it's a four set. They're based on the, uh, the four humors. Uh, yes, the fourth character showed up. I forgot. Yeah, the fourth character shows up like 10, 10 chapters in because mm-hmm. the the sort of world building stuff is based around the number three a lot, and so they're set up as a, a trifecta, and then the fourth gets added in, and I I don't know that that <laughs> anyone caught that, but all their names are based on the the four humors. I did not catch that. Yeah, so like Sander is sanguine and Philip is phlegmatic, but they're not actually they're not based that much on the on the four humors because the four humors are very. We talked about that in our character archetypes. Right, right. There's a lot of personality tests and personality types that people can use to form their characters. Yeah, it was a good starting point for me because I think Metropolitan Man, I got a lot of reviews that like people sounded too much the same. Like they had different viewpoints, but their individual like voice was too similar to one another, which I kind of agree with. I marked that down as one of the things I wanted to get better at. So. Mm-hmm. I tried to start from archetypally different just to make sure that 
when I had my characters fully fleshed out, they would still be different from each other, right? Because mm-hmm. there's this sort of gradual drift that happens in the course of writing a character that you want to smooth out if you're doing a novel and you can't really smooth out if you're doing a serial. I mean, you can go back and, and rewrite things, but you have like one chance to make that first viewpoint chapter. And then most of the people who follow along are going to mm-hmm. know that person as that going forward. You can refine a little going forward from that, but you need to flesh it out a little bit more. Anyway, so Shadows of the Limelight, I started from like historical figures that I wanted to kind of come close to, right? And then I, I went forward from there. I, I think one of the ma- main reasons that you would want to do multiple viewpoints instead of just following one person all the way is that you kind of break it up a little bit. Because if you're in one person's head the whole time, it can get not boring necessarily, but you're you're leaning a lot on that characterization. And especially mm-hmm. if you're doing long form, switching to a different viewpoint is a way to have a breather. It's a way to have your cliffhangers have a little bit more room to breathe, right? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't like when you do a cliffhanger and then you just resolve it right at the very beginning of the next chapter. Which is hard not to do if it's a single perspective. Right, yeah. In Animorphs, like, the books are usually one character at a time, except for some special books that were, like, they would have all the characters have chapters, individual chapters, like, in The Reckoning. Do you know ahead of time which parts of the story you're going to have, like, which character on, or do you have to choose basically, like, right, whose perspective do I want to take this part from? Actually, that was the question I was going to ask you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so in Animorphs canon, the books themselves cycled in a rigid order mm-hmm. for a long while. So I first started off Rationalist Animorphs by choosing a new order. It's not the exact order that was in the in canon, but I chose an order for the first few chapters and stuck with it. And since breaking that order... I broke it so as to make particular plot spoilers less obvious. Oh, okay. But since breaking that order, there's been a really interesting interplay between sometimes I choose what character is next, and as a result, it influences the plot. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I choose what, like, I, I know what plot point is coming up, and I have to sort of sit down and wonder, like, who's who should be the person who's guiding our audience through this? Right. And that uh, that actually has a pretty powerful impact on how the story is told. Yeah, I've definitely um, had to reconsider some scenes based on who I wanted the perspective to be from that sometimes would be for technical reasons. Like, Blue at one point is fighting uh, Brock for the for the boulder badge, and uh, the first time I do it, it's from his perspective because it's the first gym battle. But the second time, I do it from Red's perspective because doing the same thing from, from the same person's perspective didn't feel as interesting, and it also allowed me to, to have more suspense for what was going to happen next from the other person's perspective, but it also allowed me to like expand on Red's character a little more. Yeah. Having him witness a gym battle was a first-time thing for him, too. Yeah, and there's something there's something really interesting that happens about almost like a genre shift. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, trying to be somewhat opaque so as to not be too spoilery, but there's a moment in Randomorphs where there's I guess you would call it a war crime. It's certainly an atrocity of right. some form. And having that witnessed by Cassie turned that chapter into something largely like a drama or a character drama. Whereas you can imagine if that chapter were witnessed by Marco, it would have played out more like a thriller. And if that chapter were witnessed by Tobias, it might have played out more like action. Or by Rachel, it would have been more of an action chapter. Right. Yeah, and sort of sort of allowing the character shifts to shift not only the tone of each individual character's sort of take on life, but also the way that different characters react very, very differently to the same events, and it allows you to curate the reader's experience a little more clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get a lot of feedback on, on people who really enjoy Blue's chapters because it's the most relatable to most Pokemon fanfiction. It's just the simple, straightforward, mo- 
mostly straightforward Pokemon journey of train your Pokemon, get stronger, get badges, and all that stuff. He's not worried about all the other things that Leaf and, and Red are worried about. And so his his chapters tend to be the most like traditional action chapters. Yeah. And some people enjoy that, and some people you know enjoy the other chapters more, but it's a very different feel writing them, which helps in delineating his voice too. Yeah, for me, largely, Marco was obviously the sort of stand-in rationalist character. Mm-hmm. Anybody who read HPMOR or Metropolitan Man and was looking for more of that wanted to identify with Marco. But it was fun to see how other people would come out of the woodworks. <laughs> you know, you would write a character, you'd write a chapter from Cassie's perspective, and people would be like, this is finally when the story started to make sense to me. Gosh, it's neat to see how different people will identify with the different characters if you give them room. Not to assume that there's like one audience stand-in. Right, right. I think coming off of writing from a single viewpoint character and trying to make that single viewpoint the audience stand-in, it took me a while to catch on to the fact that the audience really was that different. Mm -hmm. I I think you run this risk of people will dislike one character and then they'll like dread that specific chapter coming up because they find it a slog. I hate that aspect of writing multiple perspectives because... Ideally, your your audience likes all your characters or feels however you want them to feel about the characters or at least finds them all engaging. But you sometimes, like, some people really like one character or two characters or they just despise a singular character and they don't want to see that person come up or they, you know, they mm-hmm. skip some chapters. Uh, I hear that from fans of A Song of Ice and Fire a lot, that there's, like, Sansa... They find her chapters really boring or something. Or hard to bear, because their character was just, in the first book especially, it's just very different from everyone else's. Yeah. I mean, the the complaints that people have are, are very different, but mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the hard things. When, when you have a single character, you're catering to an audience that likes that single character, or at least finds them compelling. Right. But if you're writing multiple perspectives, you can sometimes have this problem where people just don't like one third of your book which is <laughs> yeah kind of a difficult thing yeah i definitely get that feedback for i mean as i've mentioned before i've the most most of my concerns with writing the different characters comes from leaf like just making sure that i'm writing her as engaging as i can because most of the feedback i get is that she's the less interesting character who has the less interesting long-term plot compared to the other two so I, I'm, I'm always in the back of my mind trying to ensure that I, I do her chapters as much justice as I can. So that, at the very least, it's not a slog for the people who aren't super engaged by her. Like, I don't need to make everyone equally enjoy all the characters, if that's even possible. But at the very least, still keep still keep her engaging for the people who are more in it for Red's chapters or more in it for Blue's chapters. Especially since Red, it was only Red chapters up until uh, the Viridian Fire. And then I started pulling in the other two because, like, it was the first real, like event where they'd be split up and i needed to start pulling in people doing different things at different places at different times yeah that was like pretty late into yeah. it yeah it was like chapter it, it was chapter 12 not counting the two inter- interludes uh which is another thing we should probably discuss interludes if either of you right have written any stories with interludes i don't know off the top of my head oh well the animal story definitely has a few with i guess viscer 3 would kind of count as a as a interlude chapter right he's not quite his own or, or does he have his own rotation yeah, so Visser 3 does have his own rotation. M- many of the interludes are the third-person omniscient. They're the only time that I pop out of first-person. Visser 3's first foray was an interlude. Somebody convinced me to give Visser 3 an interlude chapter, and I wrote that from a third-person omniscient with help from several people, mostly Ketura. And then it was so popular that I ended up trying to dip into his head in the first person. It was a great chapter. I, I love getting his perspective, and he's he's a really fascinating character. And I had I've gotten feedback from I think people just really like getting the the villains' perspectives um, is, is also a part of it. 
Yeah. I do think that there's something about the way that the audience often will key into one character and ignore another character. There's some kind of magic. I haven't figured out how to do it reliably, but there is some really interesting shift that happens where if you can get the people who sort of click all of a sudden, they're like, oh, I was dreading, you know, Cassie chapters. I hated them. And then all of a sudden, like, finally, I got it. Mm -hmm. Like, I suddenly understood what it was like. My current suspicion is that it has something to do with dignifying their worldview, with, like, allowing the reader to suddenly see, like, oh, this person is internally coherent. And, like, if this if I were in their shoes, I would, in fact, take these same actions. I think that's, like, part of what causes people to stop rejecting the character. I think a lot of why people hate Sansa in Game of Thrones, for instance, is there's just... For many readers, there's just, like, no way. Like, I would never do that. That's stupid. I can't believe. But if you can get them to see, like, right. oh, all of a sudden this makes sense, I think that's when they stop hating on that one particular viewpoint. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The idea of shifting them from a from a character or even a caricature to a person makes them more engaging for sure. And that is a good insight for, I think, why a lot of people dislike Sansa, especially in, in Game of Thrones, because she's such a she's so much more naive than the other characters are, that since you know that everything going on around her is not roses and gallantry and chivalry and all that stuff, you're kind of just like, Ugh, when's this stupid girl going to wake up? Yeah. For me, for Sansa, it's it's that she's so naive, and then you know that the world is crap, mm -hmm. right? Like, if I were just reading a novel where these, like, terrible things are happening, and it's all from Sansa's perspective, that might be an, an interesting irony, I guess, <laughs> that you, like, see the edges of it. But one of the things that I like about multiple viewpoints is that you can call people on their crap really easily, mm -hmm. right? Like, you don't necessarily have a unreliable narrator, but you have, like, a semi-reliable narrator who sees things from their own perspective. And then when you switch perspectives, you can show the gaps in what they've been thinking and what they've been seeing. Right. And absent that, people will just blame the author. Of course. Even with multiple perspectives and other characters pointing out other characters' crap, you still get the idea of, like, oh, this is the main character, so this is the thing that the author most thinks or most agrees with. Right. Yeah. So, do you have any situations where you've you've written a uh, chapter from one character's perspective and then just kind of like, nah, this isn't right, and start over from another one? I've had the experience of getting a page or two in and then giving up. Mm -hmm. I usually take that feeling of like, oh, this is awful. <laughs> <laughs> I like. I usually take that as a sign and give up as soon as I can. Mm -hmm. In fact, right now I'm struggling with that in deciding I've got a chapter that I think is supposed to be Axe and it's slow going and I'm not sure whether I'm going to bail out and have it be someone else instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely done that. I was writing this novel that's it's in my complete sometime box, but I got through like half the novel and then I was like, you know, this really needs a second viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And so I went back and on rewrite just started it. Uh, there are two, two main characters, but only one whose viewpoint is used. And so I went back and I, started rewriting because I needed the, the shift in perspective to show everything that was going on. Right. I mean, it's not finished, so I don't know if it works yet, but yeah, if I, if I have a writer's block for us for a scene or a chapter, I'll, I'll either change the perspective for that scene or I'll jump to a different part of the chapter that has a different person's perspective that I'm more able to get into at that moment. Cause there's a lot of also like identifying the conflict in a scene uh, is a, is a big deal for me now that I, that I'm trying to do my best to make sure each scene is, is engaging and, and timely in terms of how it moves the plot along. Like, different characters will have a different 
goal in every scene and some of them won't have a goal that's that that's that compelling but if you can find the character that does that's that's probably the best one to go with yeah although occasionally it's fun to have the viewpoint character be the one on the side <laughs> watching everybody bicker and just like being disgusted by it right right watching people freak out while they while they're like the straight man <laughs> yeah did you guys ever read uh, what was it called the, the, well first of all did you guys ever read twilight yes Oh, we have to admit this publicly? Yes. <laughs> Look, Stephen King said that you've got to read bad books as well as good to inoculate yourself against <laughs> against bad writing practices. And I agree. I will I will admit that I enjoyed the later books of Twilight much more than the first one. The first one was, was pretty bad. But there was a, a thing that she did where she wrote the first book. She was writing the first book from Edward's perspective instead. I forgot what it was called. I think it was like... It was uh, Midnight... Midnight Sun? Mid-morning Sun? sun? Midday Sun? Yeah, it's, it was something like <laughs> right. that. I loved that. Yes, uh, yes. I thought it was. Great. I found it online, and it, she didn't complete it, unfortunately, because someone leaked it, and she got really upset about that, and understandably decided not to not to finish it. But um, I I was reading that, and I was like, wow, this is much better. Like, it <laughs> probably wouldn't have been a, as big a commercial success because it was it would have been towards a very different audience, I guess. You know, that would have enjoyed it. But Edward's perspective turns out having a character with actual goals and agency, and you know, an interesting backstory and stuff makes a big difference. <laughs> yeah, I liked it because because Edward was so creepy. <laughs> He was like he, he's creepy in Twilight because yeah. he's like this he's like a hundred year old virgin who keeps going to high school thirty times for not really that clear of reasons and, and, and then in Midnight Sun if that is what it's called it, it just like pulls back the veil on that mm-hmm. and he like sneaks into her room and just like sits in this rocking chair and stares at her and it is so weird <laughs> I guess and not what I would think teenage girls would be into. Uh-huh. I might be wrong about well, that. Well, clear, clearly you know. are wrong about that because. <laughs> <laughs> but personally, I never really saw Edward's character as that creepy from reading Twilight. I was just like, yeah, you know, he's an immortal vampire. He, social norms just don't apply to him. He's from he's from a very different world than than we're used to and that kind of thing. But what I liked about his perspective was also just seeing that like his conflict was felt real, opposed to in Twilight where I was reading it and I was just like, oh, you know. He's just trying not to hurt this girl that he likes and wants to drink the blood from and all that stuff. But from his perspective, like you're like, okay, he actually is really actually scared of hurting her. Like you can feel it. It's more it's more immediate. And he like runs off to try to just stay away from her and that kind of thing. And it's like he's taking steps to actually avoid it. Whereas in in the book, he's he's not. Anyway, we'll, let's get back from discussing Twilight. Unless you guys really want to continue. Um, oh shit, no, I just thought of something else about Twilight to, to bring up. <laughs> So Twilight stays throughout it from Bella's perspective. It's not until the third book that Jacob starts getting a, a chapter perspective. Like half the book of the third one, I think, is from Jacob's perspective. Is it the third one? Maybe it's the fourth one. I think it's the third one. Anyway, I really like Jacob's chapter. Like, I, I really like Jacob's sections. Like, I, I enjoyed his his voice. I enjoyed his character a lot more than I did from Bella's perspective. Uh, I like the werewolf tribes, like, in inner politics. And that's another thing that I really enjoy about books that have the multiple perspectives is you kind of get a sense of what the story is like, and you can enjoy the story a lot from from the main character's perspective. But when you find another character who who sees things in a in a different light, it kind of opens the door to... Also, like you were saying before, about different genres. Like, it, it feels like a, a different genre when you have a different enough character. Yeah. Although there is a cost to sort of throwing that in late in the game. Mm-hmm. One of the most disorienting things about the, uh, the original Ender's Game sequels, Speaker for the Dead and Xenocide, is the way that Orson Scott Carr just... All right, we're just like, here we are. We're on Portuguese world. Mm-hmm. And the characters are just sort of lot like I'm not sure if I have the right book. Mm-hmm. And then it goes Xenocide, you've got the the Chinese world. 
Yep. Now, okay, you got used to Portuguese world, but now you need to spend a few chapters learning about there's this thing, this girl's mother died, it's very sad, mm -hmm. and yeah, it ended up being good, but it was definitely jarring and abrupt at the first pass. Yeah, I think that's one of the big risks that you run with multiple viewpoints, sort of no matter how you do it, is that you run the risk of people getting disoriented because you're pulling yourself out of one person's head and then sticking the reader back in someone else's head from someone else's perspective. Like, you can do that for effect. There's a Charles Strauss novel, where, which is a second person multiple viewpoint, which is very... That sounds confusing as hell. Disorienting. Yeah, it's it's disorienting and confusing and a little off-putting, and it's used that way for effect right. as sort of part of the way the narrative is woven. But, like, you wouldn't just want to write a novel like that. You want that to be part of your conceit in some way. But, like, if you if you switch viewpoints, like, between scenes, Animorphs does it uh, by chapter exclusively. Is that right? Yeah, so far. Ho hopefully I can stick to that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good way to do it. That's how Glamorden does it. So every time there's a new chapter, you sort of... When you're in the reading experience, you're going to a new page, and then you see someone's name at the top, and you're like, okay, I'm mentally prepared to go into someone's head. Yeah. Other stories I've written just do it by by scene, and you have to cue the reader in really quick about whose head they're in. But it's, it's a little easier if you're doing third person rather than first person. Although there's an interesting trick there, too. One of the things I liked most about Ender's Game was the sort of pseudo- additional viewpoint at the start of each chapter. Oh, uh, yeah, the starting chapter, yeah. Yeah, and I, I have a similar thing in my own non-fanfiction work that I'm working on, where the start of each chapter is a dialogue written without any place or person cues, and one of the things that I play with there is making it really hard to tell which of the two people are speaking, which is at first somewhat annoying to my readers, I think, but it's because the two characters are like so much in sync uh, they're very close friends, and you can't, mm -hmm. like, it doesn't really, it almost doesn't even matter which one of them is speaking, like Fred or George. And I think I think it's a spice that you want to use really sparingly. I wouldn't want to make the bulk of a chapter be like that. But throwing in that disorientation, I think, can also be a tool, not just a bug, but a feature. Right. I really like that, the starting thing in Ender's Game that did that. And I think they they kind of continue it with all, the, with all the later books in the series, don't they? Where there's something different at the start of each chapter. I remember they're doing some, them doing something like that with Speaker for the Dead, too. And I think Xenocide, too, at least. But it wasn't the same. It wasn't quite a, it wasn't a conversation every time. It was, it was something different. Yeah. I did something similar to that. I did like a, a letter. In the fantasy story that I, that I co-wrote, there's a, there's like a letter between the antagonists that are, they're not quite antagonists they're kind of it's kind of complicated but like letters back going back and forth between them that kind of reveal part of the wider plot as the chapters uh, progress yeah there are a lot of interesting tools to to pull in different perspectives even if you don't necessarily give different characters their own perspectives the story i'm writing now obviously has different perspectives through scene breaks so we'll have a chapter that might be start with red end up with blue and somewhere in the middle you switch to leaf or switch back and forth between red and blue and then ends with leaf or whatever it is and i find this useful usually because my chapters are really long and usually cover like a, sometimes some will start to cover like a number of days or even if there's an action scene getting the same action scene from different perspectives is, is useful but it's it comes with that risk of disorientation. I know that that is different for different readers. I've had I've had some readers that really surprised me with saying, you know, they think this is it's too too much shifting going around. Whereas for me, like I'm really used to it, so I don't I don't know so as much. So I've been trying to pay more attention to that. Uh, do you do that in you do perspective shifts with a scene break always? Yes, yes. I don't 
You never, you never do it outside of that. Right. I've never done third-person omniscient where I've been in one character's head and then without breaking the, the scene or breaking a paragraph with a line break um, going into another character's head. I don't like third-person omniscient personally. It bothers me when I read it, so I guess I just don't use it. I think Illuminatus Trilogy is one of the only books I've read that does the shift third-person limited and then just goes to a different one within the same scene. But that's it's like a very weird book, so it's kind of understandable. I'm beta reading a book right now by Inuyash Brodsky that is uh, really interesting because it has three different character perspectives, and one of them is written in first person, one of them is written in second person, one of them is written in third person, and it kind of gives you this immediate idea of who you're reading right when you when it, when you start the chapter thing. But I haven't I haven't finished it yet or, or managed to ask him his his thought process on it. So I'm I'm curious to know like what made him decide to do that because it has a different obviously each each character has a different feel to them but it also has a different feel for the perspective which is not the only book i've ever seen that has done that but i think it's the only one that i've seen that's used all three of them within the same story how much attention do you pay to to like vocabulary and yeah. tone and stuff like that when you when you do a shift because I, I i usually do most of that by intuition rather than like thinking deliberately Right. Dialogue I never really have an issue with. Blue is always going to sound different from red, and Leaf has her own voice fairly clear in my head, but sometimes in the narration, I feel like because the narration can kind of... It's on the spectrum between outside the character, but also somewhat in their head. I, I will sometimes describe things one way in a blue chapter and think, no, this is something that Red would notice more, this is the way Red would think of this, and just rewrite it to, to be more of a, a blue a blue feel to it or a leaf feel to it interludes interludes strangely i don't really have that problem with interludes because interludes feel much more disconnected you know whatever characters are part of the interlude i'll, I'll have their perspective somewhat in it but it's more de- it's more detached usually except for the mutual interludes obviously i definitely have some very careful things to do with dialogue and perspective for instance i came up with a list one time of how each character would swear <laughs> what character's relationship to swearing would be. So Tobias says whatever the fuck he wants, Mm -hmm. whereas Jake will occasionally think some tame swears in his head, but won't say them out loud. Cassie, of course, never swears. And I was just like, sort of made a list of what words each character would use, both internally and externally. But I I think the broader thing there is more about having a deep understanding, like you were saying, that Blue would think about this this way or so forth, Mm -hmm. of what each character will pay attention to, sort of like what the lodestones are that catches each character's attention. Jake is always thinking in terms of like social stuff and modeling people. Tobias is always basically fixated on his best friend Garrett, who he thinks of as his little brother, and stuff like that. I think if you do it all through language and and word choice specifically, uh, some readers will miss it. It's good to have that be the background, but I think you need something bigger that's a signal. Mm -hmm. Garrett's actually a really interesting uh, character for for having, I think, the most unique voice and and perspective from all the other characters. W- have you had any int- like have you had any challenges when you when you're writing his chapters or is there is it like easy for you to go into his voice? Yeah, actually, the most interesting challenge when writing Garrett's chapter is having a really hard time getting around to the point. Mm-hmm. It has it has its own momentum, and I sort of like find myself being drawn off track into the thing that I sort of run the character as simulation. I simulate Garrett in the place. And it often is hard for me to, like, wrench him around to pay attention to the things I want him to pay attention to. I was halfway through his original chapter, and I had writer's block, and I sent it off to some of my beta readers because I had writer's block, and I was trying to get through it. And they were like, just publish this. Like, don't don't write the second half of the chapter. Just publish mm-hmm. it right here. And that's how Garrett ended up with a much shorter chapter than everybody else. But, yeah, it, momentum is a thing. I don't, know if, I don't know if you guys have this similar experience, but sometimes they don't do what I tell them to do. 
Yeah, I've spoken before about how my characters are essentially Indian in the cupboard style, sitting on my shoulder or on my desk, like, staring at what I write as I write it and criticizing it or yelling at each other and arguing with each other. So it's, it's an interesting experience when, when a character surprises you and you, you think they're going to do something and then they end up, like, resisting. And it's like, that's not what I thought you would do or that's something that I wanted you to do, but I guess you just don't want to do it, so I'm going to have to rethink this scene. Yeah. In general, though, like, it's extremely fun to write Garrett. Fun is not exactly the word. It's somewhere between fun and flow state. Mm -hmm. Because I sort of just boot him up and then, like, crack my knuckles and just let him go. Yes. Uh, similarly, it's extremely fun to write Visser 3. It's extremely fun to write Rachel when she's angry. <laughs> it's extremely fun to write Marco when he's bitter. You just sort of, like, once they're doing their thing, their, like, special trick, the words just gush. Yes. Yeah. Each, each character also, for me, has a, has a very specific flow state that it's the funnest to get them into. And it's a different flavor of enjoyable for each of them. I've got this thing where I've got to, like, I, I worry about how much time I'm spending with each character. I don't know if it's something you guys deal with because you've got the rotation on Ranomorphs. And I don't know if I've counted whether you've got a rotation going for um, Glim Warden or whether you did for Dark Wizard of Dunkirk. But I've occasionally had to, like think about okay it's been it took a while for me to even have a, a full chapter with leaf which is probably part of why her character doesn't feel as enjoyable or developed for a lot of people but it's just i've been noticing sometimes i think to myself like oh i've got I've, I've been spending a lot of time with red and blue lately or i've been spending a lot of time with red and leaf together let's go back to blue and see what he's up to which i don't know if it's the best way to do it because it feels it's, it feels kind of like an artificial incentive on myself for, for where I should let the story go, but it's something that I, I'm, I'm aware of, at least. Yeah, so for Glimwarden, it is a strict rotation for the first, I think, six chapters. And then I was like, well, I can shoehorn in another chapter from someone whose perspective I don't want to use, or I can just go out of order and decide that I don't really care. And I decided I wanted to go out of order and not really care. Mm -hmm. uh, partly because I was editing the Timewise Tales, which is a thing that's still awaiting publication somehow. But that has a very strict... It's three perspectives and a very strict rotation through the three of them. And that caused a lot of problems because I was sticking to that so closely. And it kind of needs to be for... I mean, it's, it's like a time travel story that braids a lot of plot lines that are going in different causal directions. And so it's just a pain in the butt when you need to have a chapter for someone and then they don't really have anything to do that chapter. Uh -huh. they, their, their chapter needs to come later on. I, I really like the rigid structure. I'm a structuralist as far as novels go. When I'm reading, I like symmetry. I like palindromes in narrative structure. I like when there is a strict order to things. I think it's one way that you can... It, it is artificial, but it's one way that you can make sure that you are giving everyone enough time. One of the things, to get back to A Song of Ice and Fire, one of the things I absolutely hated about narrative structure was you get to the end of book three and then book four <laughs> some people are totally absent yeah yeah and there were people i liked and i'm like okay well i'm gonna have to wait you know at, at the time book four was published it was like oh it'll it, be a year yeah <laughs> uh it was not a year it was six years so you just have to wait so long to get back to people and then partly it's because of the publication history but you've sort of forgotten about them i think you run that risk if you go like five chapters in a row without dipping into someone's head, it can get a little rusty for mm -hmm. the reader. And it, depending on how you write, it can get rusty for you as a, as a writer too, to get back to that person and what they're thinking. Yeah, strong agreement to basically everything that you just said. I think there's 
there's a thing about tiering your characters, T-I-E-R, having your characters mm-hmm. be in different tiers. I think it's important to give your readers clues as to what to expect. I think people expect to see, in Animorphs, for instance, they expect to see Garrett a little less, they expect to see Tom a little less, and like having that feel natural is important. I do think that breaking out... like. I, there there were a bunch of times where I just wanted to write six Tobias chapters in a row <laughs> because he he was a, an attractor for the plot. Uh, but I think it made me a better writer to force myself to figure out what was going on not in Tobias's world. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think there there's an interesting strength that comes out of breaking the rotation. I agree with structure being great, but one of the things that I was joking with my beta readers about was if I stuck to the rigid schedule at some point, Marco was going to say, like, hey, have you ever noticed that interesting things keep happening? <laughs> you know, maybe we should keep an eye on Jake this month. <laughs> but yeah, so I think I think balance is maybe more important than order, um, although I acknowledge that's just a, a personal aesthetic perspective. Yeah, uh, Dark Wizard of Dunkirk has no structure to its viewpoint chapters. I think there are, like, a dozen different viewpoint characters. I think that's probably a bad choice. In Dark Wizards, really? Oh yeah, I can think. I just realized like I, the way I, th- I saw it was got the the three main characters and then also the the soldier guy, the, the oathkeeper. Yeah, you have both of the Henry's parents. Harry. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I yeah. cannot remember what the main character's <laughs> name is. I think I changed it like three times. <laughs> anyway, it was a national novel writing month novel, so it's that's kind of to be expected because because you sometimes get to a point and you're like, oh, I don't know what's gonna happen next. Let's just switch perspectives and. Let's just end on a cliffhanger, switch perspectives, and then maybe by the time I'm done with this other scene, I'll know where I was going. So yeah, there are, there are like 10, maybe 12 different mm-hmm. perspectives that are littered throughout. It is centered around two to three main characters. Right, like Duncan was saying, I was I was seeing that more as they didn't feel like they were they were cluttering anything because it's like, okay, now we're getting an outside perspective, but we know we'd not to expect it as much as these three main characters. Yeah, I, I do agree with that, that tiering perspective, but Dark Wizard of Dunkirk is just so structurally slipshod, and it's because trying to write at speed, I was just hopping around so much. I think that's actually one of the big weaknesses of it, as it stands. I mean, it's first draft, so I'm not... Super concerned about it. So it makes you feel uncomfortable as as the writer? Yeah. Does it bother you reading stories like that? It depends. I think that it can work for you if the tone of the work is kind of slipshod. Mm-hmm. Slipshod is a, not a bad word, but maybe not the correct word. Relaxed? Relaxed. Yeah, loose. Like, you can be, you know, loosey-goosey with your structure <laughs> if if you're telling a loosey-goosey story. Loosey-goosey. Um, yeah. This is 1970s word. now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But if you're doing, like, a more serious drama, I would expect a more serious structure to the story. I'm not sure. I would have to actually think about that for, like, 20 minutes to see if I agree with it. But that's where I sit right now. I'm definitely more of a loosey-goosey writer myself. So I, I, if it makes you feel better, I enjoyed Dark Wizards of Dunkirk's uh, structure just fine. Like, it didn't bother me. Yeah. Well, I, I, I haven't reread it, so <laughs> uh, I guess I'll see. I'll, I'll have to reread it. see how you feel on the I'm, reread? Yeah. Things are always worse when you're writing them. Or when I'm writing them. Mm-hmm. I, I, always, I always feel terrible about the things I'm writing. I'm just like, oh, this is garbage. I think that's most of the stuff that I could think of to talk about right now. What about you guys? Anything you want to bring up? I had I had one last little... Uh, Go ahead. I mean, you know, you guys have heard about people who, like, randomize their characters by, like, rolling a die to mm-hmm. determine their name or gender or whatever. I think one thing that's, that's super fun... I didn't realize that you'd done the thing with the four humors... Alex, I think that's super awesome. Uh, yeah. If anybody's if anybody's having a hard time coming up with differentiated characters and they're they're trying to make a cast of different characters, 
I highly recommend I'm, – I'm a nerd here. I highly recommend looking up the Magic the Gathering color wheel <laughs> and making a red character, a blue character, a black character, a white character, a green character in that system just as a jumping off point. And then if that if that breaks, obviously do whatever is sane. But it's a really good system for sort of dignifying all types of people and dignifying all sorts of viewpoints. I'm really glad you brought that up, not just as a Magic fan, but also because, like you said, it's a great bit of – character building starting point to the point where I actually wanted to write a Magic the Gathering fan fiction with a character from each in some situation together like as friends and just I was really interested in seeing their dynamic as people who are friendly with each other but still having the closeness and, and antagonism between them that the color wheel has. Yeah, in my own personal novel, the one that I care the most about that I've been working on for a decade or whatever, I hit a writer's block right around the time I was discovering the Magic the Gathering color pie philosophy. And it was immediately clear to me that my second most important character was red. And then I was like, huh, I wonder what colors Connor, my main character, is. And I got really terrified when I realized I had no idea. <laughs> and I sat down and thought about it for a week. He's not a factor. And then as soon as I decided that Connor would be blue-green, mm-hmm. I like smashed through the writer's block and wrote, I don't know, 20,000 words that week. Very cool. Uh, what color are you? <laughs> Me personally? Yeah. Oh, we're getting some personal questions here. <laughs> <laughs> Blue, white, red in that order. All right. I started fairly green and shifted more towards white and blue over time. So now I kind of think of myself as blue, white, green. What about you? Uh, I'm. I think either blue, green, or blue, red. Mm-hmm. Pro- probably blue, green, red. I had a colleague who I described. I was I was typing people in my workplace, and I described my colleague as being blue, green. And she said, "What? No, I hate green. Green <laughs> is stupid. It's the worst." So now I think she's blue, red, green. <laughs> I made magic cards for all my friends at one point in my life, um, which I highly recommend, by the way, for any anyone who enjoys both magic and making fun of their friends. <laughs> and it's it was very fun just like seeing what colors I feel like they have and giving them really fun abilities, and everyone enjoyed it immensely. And when I made myself, kind of tongue-in-cheek, I, I made myself all five colors because my class is therapist, and just my, my power was adding colors to other creatures, adding colors to their, to their card. And like the idea of, of characters changing colors always interests me. I read... Um, the Odyssey trilogy, I think it was, with Kamal the Barbarian in Magic. Mm-hmm. And the, his character starts a Barbarian, pure red, becomes green. And his sister, also a Barbarian, goes from red to black. And I read them when I was young, and I really enjoyed seeing that character progression and how it reflected the the color wheel that they were part of the Magic books. They're, a lot of them are hit or miss for me. I enjoy some of them a lot and some of them not so much. But the characters are usually, seeing, seeing the characters interact with others from different colors is, is really enjoyable. Anything that you want to plug, Duncan? <laughs> uh, don't give up on Animorphs. <laughs> I know updates have been slow. We're trying to save the world over here. But there are new chapters coming within the next 10 days. <laughs> this episode actually won't air for like three weeks. So you've got... I know, got... don't tell them that. That's how I get away with it. <laughs> this is... Um, anyone who hasn't read Rational Animorphs yet for whatever reason, either you're putting it off or you're waiting for it to be finished or you're trying to read the canon first. All valid reasons, but it's it's amazing. Check it out. I love it. Thanks. All right. Thank you for joining us. This was uh, one of the discussions I've wanted to have for a while, so I'm glad we got it. And yeah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone, and tune in next time. Okay. Um, anything that you guys want to go back over or like reshoot a line or anything? I'm good for my end. Okay.
just like I was muted for a lot of it, right? So just include some laughs <laughs> at appropriate moments. Uh-huh. <laughs> This is something I've been wanting to do for a while, actually, just get little bits of laughter from you and, and like, yeses and nos and things, so I could just input them. Yeah, and then... they did it for Siri. They you just I'll just record every single sound, and you can stitch them together. 